morning, everyone. Man, I thought I brought enthusiasm to this platform. Following those kids, that's going to be a hard act to follow. Uh, Marianne, thank you so much for doing such great work with those kids. I know it takes a lot, and Marion and Ray, I'm sure you're helping out. I saw some of the Fever girls helping out. Susan, thank you for spearheading that. And just, and parents, good news is you can listen to some other music now, now that they got that out of their system, right? So, fantastic. Well, friends, it is good to be back. Um, uh, enjoyed my last time of sabbatical this past November. Uh, Lori and I had a chance to go off to England for a little bit, been in London again, and, and we caught the Eurostar over to Paris for a couple of days, and, and that was a wonderful time. Um, Probably one of the highlights of our trip was we actually got to go while we were in London to a church that has been influential in my life, at least the pastor's name is Dick Lucas. Uh, he, he was the pastor of St. Helens Bishopgate, which is right downtown in the heart of the financial district in London. You can see some of the very modern buildings there. Now, the great thing about St. Helens is this church has been there since 1210. AD, right? I mean, I mean, 800 years this church has been proclaiming the gospel literally in the same spot. You can see some of the old buildings there. This, this is actually some of the newer parts of the church. This was in the 14th, 15th century there. And so um, it was a wonderful time. Here's a little newspaper article from the 19th century of St. Helens. To be able to hear the gospel preached with, with clarity, with conviction and passion uh, from, a, from a church that has been there for over eight centuries was one of the most amazing ways to experience the steadfast love of God. Um, but that being said, I'm glad to be back here in our own church, picking up our study in the book of Samuel. And today we're in Samuel chapter 9. Not your typical Advent series, but part of the reason we do this, if you're new to Christ Community Church or you're visiting, is uh, a lot of times people visit church twice a year, right? They'll, they'll visit like Christmas time and Easter. And my heart goes out to those people because generally speaking, you, you hear the same sermons every time. And so sometimes at Christ Community Church, rather than switch it up and do an Advent series or an Easter special series, we continue preaching through the Word of God. And what that means is you're going to hear, if this is the few times a year you come to a church, a different message. But at the same time, if you're really paying attention, and I hope you are, you're going to be hearing the same message, right, just in a different way. And so we're going to continue through our study of the book of 2 Samuel. This morning is chapter 9, and it's only 13 verses, so it's pretty short. So turn open to 2 Samuel chapter 9 if you have a Bible. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, that's page 243. So once you find your way over to 2 Samuel, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? 2 Samuel Chapter 9. I'm looking at my wife because she's going to let me know if I'm going too fast. I haven't preached in a month, so i got to get it all out. Doing okay? Good speed, sweetie? So I, I, don't, don't speed up or speed up? I can speed up. Okay, get to the point. Oh, all right. Love that. Second Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him the kindness of so that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, well, where is he? 
And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Verse 8, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's household became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the past few weeks, as we've been studying Samuel has been quite a whirlwind, haven't they? A few weeks ago, you studied 2 Samuel 7 and were introduced to the Davidic covenant, God's plans and promises and purposes for David. The purpose and the plan and the promise that he'd have an everlasting throne, a house that will never end, and a son who would rule forever. By the way, I don't know if you picked up on the two references to the throne in the house of David in our Advent reading from Luke 1, uh, chapter 1 this morning, but it was there. Then in chapter 8, you learned of the conquering king and the expanding kingdom. It was as if the covenant that God promised David in chapter 7 is already coming to pass, and you had that wonderful description of David's kingdom in verse 15 of chapter 8. It said, so David reigned over Jerusalem or Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. If you're familiar with 2 Samuel, in chapter 10, it continues. You see more of this epic success and prosperity, battles being won, enemies being subdued, the kingdom and the people flourish. But sandwiched between chapters 8 and 10, obviously, is chapter 9. And chapter 9 has a very different feel. It's a very different scene than what we've seen up to this point. Certainly what we see in chapter 8 and what we see in portions of chapter 10. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It's kind of a one-on-one conversation. It's almost as if God wants to show a different aspect of his covenant faithfulness. In the midst of all this this grand scope of what God is doing for the people, how God is exalting the nation and establishing the throne, in chapter 9, we're treated to a very different view of God's covenant faithfulness in a very personal and intimate way. And just that by alone, it bears mention that this is something very important for us to remember, friends. That God's plans, his purposes, his promises are both corporate and 
personal. We have to maintain that balance. That is to say, God's plans for the world, they're not merely institutional, nor are God's plans and purposes merely individual. Gospel realities are always operating at both levels constantly, the institutional level, the individual level, corporate and personal, head and heart, intellectual and emotional, the relational and the rational. And friends, we can avoid a lot of heartache as a church or as Christians who comprise the church by remembering that reality that the gospel is more often and also not either or. And we got to keep that balance because there's a tendency to kind of crash into one ditch or the other. If we think of God's plans and working as always just institutional, our Christianity can be rather abstract or sterile or cold about rules and regulations. On the other hand, if our view of Christianity is that it's always individual, our Christianity can be very narcissistic and more like therapy rather than God's redemptive plan. And so the Bible is always reminding us of this this dual level that the gospel is working on all these levels all the time. And we've actually seen the same dynamic working out in the very structure of 2 Samuel, the text itself, as it zooms out and we see how God is working in the nation and his plans, and then it zooms in on individuals within that nation experiencing that plan. And chapter 9 is one of those chapters that zooms in on David And the the, the thing he says, this beautiful question that he asks, sets up the stage of everything we're going to talk about this morning. Look at verse 1 where David asked the question, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? The word we translate kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. It appears three times in our chapter here at verse 1, verse 3, And then again in verse 7. Now, kindness, as we've translated it, it's a nice translation as far as words go. But chesed, the the Hebrew word, is a kindness that is rooted in promise. It's a, a loyalty. It is a resolve to do good, a deep desire to be a blessing to another because of a promised affection. So kindness is a good word, but sometimes, if you, if you, if you, especially if you're bilingual, you speak, speak different languages, you know how it, sometimes things get lost in translation. Chesed is this kind of loyal kindness rooted in promise and covenant. So so when I talk about a promised affection, what's that? That is, when we say kindness or chesed is rooted in promise, I'm referring to covenant. Now, not the covenant that you heard about in chapter 7, right? I don't want to confuse this. Although in 2 Samuel 7.15, the Lord says, my chesed will never depart from the house of David. But the covenant that, 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 that I'm referring to here is more David's promise, David's covenant with his friend Jonathan. Look at verse 1. Look at the very end of verse 1. For Jonathan's sake. See, about 15, 20 years earlier from our narrative, our account here, David makes a promise. He makes a covenant with Jonathan. Let's take a look at it. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel 9 and turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 14 to 17, where this this covenant is made that we now are experiencing this chesed. 
1 Samuel 20, verse 14, here's Jonathan speaking to David. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love, the chesed, the kindness of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, there's the same word again, from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now skip down a few verses in that same chapter, verse 42. It's the very end of the chapter, chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying... The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Get back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. So chapter 9 in 2 Samuel is really doing double duty, right? On the one hand, it's showing the original readers of 2 Samuel the faithfulness and the friendship of David to Saul's son Jonathan, the integrity of the king. It's dispelling any thought that David was a usurper of the throne. It's showing that David has integrity and loved the house of Saul, loved the king's son, and is keeping his covenant. He's showing chesed to his house. So that's one thing that 2 Samuel's doing. But another thing 2 Samuel's doing, and probably more important for us, is that it's teaching us the personal, intimate, wonderful, tender side of biblical covenant. And, and that's really important because what we just saw in chapter 7 was this huge view of covenant, right? God's eternal, magnificent, transcendent, maybe this institutional reality of what God promises to do for his people. And, and we're seeing some of that play out in chapters 8 and a little bit in chapter 9. But chapter, or excuse me, chapter 10, but chapter 9 is also showing us that amongst this huge, radical realities of covenant, there's a real intimate, a real tender, a real personal side of this biblical chesed, loving kindness that God extends to his people. In the gospel, God promises, another word for promise, God covenants, uh, another word for covenant is testament. So look at your Bible, right? You've got the old Testament, the New Testament, same word, covenant, testament, promise. They're all synonyms of one another. So you could say you got the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, old promises, new promises. Actually, that's how you could describe the Bible in four words. Promises made, promises kept. There's the Bible, right? Old Testament, promises made, New Testament, promises kept. And so in the gospel, God promises covenants protection for his people. He promises provision for his people. He promises a new identity for his people. And we're going to see that play out. Friends, the power of covenant, the power of covenant is in the fact that promises made in the past dictates and directs present faithfulness and guarantees future security and blessing. That's what covenants do. Like, so if you're fortunate enough to be married... When you entered the marriage covenant, the promises you made on that day dictates how you're going to act today, and it guarantees to your spouse how you will conduct yourself in the future, 
right? So if you're a member of a local church, you've made a covenant. And here at Christ Community Church, we make it explicit. We actually make you, if you're a member, sign a covenant so that the promises you made on that day dictates your actions in the present and guarantees how you're going to behave in the future. Now, real quick, this is all off the top of my head, so it's a little bit side, uh, side benefit here. Covenants do not regulate love's intensity, Okay, real clear. Covenant, whether it's your marriage covenant or even your church covenant, it doesn't regulate the, the intensity of your love for one another. Right? So, so you get it. Like when you first get married, there's this like romance and infatuation and all that. Well, it, that doesn't mean like so 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, that may not be there. I'm mean, just going to be honest. That may not be there. Covenant doesn't regulate the intensity of love. But what does it regulate is the security of that love, no matter what. Even if the, the butterflies have gone away and it's, it's kind of replaced with a little indigestion, you're, you're still going to be there no matter what. Covenant regulates the security of love, not necessarily the intensity. And just and same things like in a church. I mean, half the time you, you guys don't really want to love me like you should because I'm a little hard to love. But you do, why? Because you covenanted to do so, right? So you may not feel like loving me or one another the way you should, but you're going to because covenant regulates security, not necessarily intensity, right? So, sorry, we're, I gotta find my place in my notes now. Um, so here's the core message of chapter nine. Here's the engine of chapter nine. As David shows covenant kindness to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, we're going to learn about God's covenant kindness in the gospel to all who believe. So as we see this happening in David's keeping his chesed to Mephibosheth because of the covenant he made with Jonathan, we're going to learn a little bit about how God relates with us through the gospel. And we can do all this just by simply unpacking the central verse of our chapter, which is just verse 7. That's the only verse we'll really look at, where David says three really important things. Look at it. Don't be afraid. Or, or do not fear, eat at my table, be my son. Those are the three things David says to Mephibosheth, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, technically, if you're looking at it, uh, verse 7 doesn't say, be my son. But if you look at the end of verse 11, verse 11 expands what verse 7 means. Verse 11 says, what does it mean to eat at the king's table? It means to be like one of his sons. So just for clarity's sake, I kind of put all that in that verse. So let's look at them one at a time. Covenant's protection. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. At this point in David's kingdom, he's got some breathing room. His enemies are being subdued. God's establishing and blessing him. And he says, I need to make good on a, on a promise, on a covenant, a berith that I've made before to Jonathan. Is there anyone? Notice, it's not just to Jonathan. He's casting the net wide. Is there anyone of Saul's house that I might show chesed to? Turns out Ziba knows of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, it turns out, living in a kind of exile in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, uh, it, it means no word from the, the Hebrew prefix lo and the Hebrew word debar, lo debar, no word, um, nothing, no, literally nowhere. So Mephibosheth is living out in this insignificant, out of the way place called, literally called nowhere, a perfect place to hide and to be forgotten. 
And the reason you want to hide and be forgotten if you're Mephibosheth is because in the ancient Near East, and, and if you know anything about history, really any kind of prior, prior to kind of modern democracies, when there was a transition in power, when the throne went to somebody else, there was typically a royal purge of any member of the former family. Right? You see that in the Bible itself. Look at 2 Kings chapter 10 or 11. You see that same dynamic. New kings in power, and they wipe out every member of the former family, any threat to the throne. So Mephibosheth is in hiding out in nowhere, Lodabar. Now you can only imagine what's going through Mephibosheth's mind, the trepidation and the fear as he is being brought before David. Because he's expecting what anyone there, there rightly would expect, that he's going to get executed. This was the cultural norm. This was the expectation. The king would have been fully in his rights to defend his throne and wipe out his rivals. So right away, if, if verse 1, if you're in the court of David and you, and you hear David say what he says in verse 1, you just are reminded again, this is not the king any of us expected because he's actively seeking to do good to the enemies of his throne. All right, but Mephibosheth wasn't there. So what's going through Mephibosheth's mind? You can only imagine what the cultural expectation is. What happened to Abner in chapter 3? Remember that? What happened to Ishbosheth in chapter 4? In Mephibosheth's mind, that's just proof that David is cleaning house, man. And now he's been found and the same, await is, uh, same fate is awaiting him. The only thing he can hope for is a mercifully swift execution, maybe a beheading of some sort or that. That's, that's the best he's got to hope for. And what, what should he do? What can he do? You read the text. He's a lame man. He's crippled in both feet. Did you see verse 3 and verse 13 made a point of reminding us of that? And if you've forgotten, we, we, we met Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, it also mentioned that he was crippled in his feet. When he was about five years old, at the time of 1 Samuel 31, the battle of Mount Geboa, when Saul and his father Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, were slain. Mephibosheth was a young child, and his nursemaid, in a haste panic, dropped him, broke his legs, and he had been crippled ever since. What can he do? He's a cripple from a defeated house, a rival to the throne. And so when we see him at verse 6, Mephibosheth meets David, and he just throws himself onto the ground before him. Now, friends, this is not just a cultural nicety. you got to realize for a cripple how painful an act that must have been to literally physically throw yourself onto the floor. And he's acknowledging his unworthiness. He, he's literally throwing himself at the mercy of this new king who in his mind has been cleaning house. Killed Abner, he's thinking. Probably killed Ishbosheth, he's thinking. Because he's been in hiding. He doesn't know about this king. Now, Mephibosheth, he could have played his cards differently, couldn't he? If you don't know anything about history, that often happens. Part of the defeated house, he could have showed up with a chip on his shoulder, a plan up his sleeve, a grudge in his heart, a way to scheme against the king. Defiant, even to the death. But he doesn't. He's humble. And he bows down before the king, and the most unexpected thing happens. This lame cripple, the enemy of the throne, who throws himself to the floor, the king does for him something he can't do for himself. He raises him up. 
David's response to Mephibosheth is a beautiful picture, friends, of Christ's response to all who would just bow before him. David says, don't be afraid. Eat at my table. Be my son. David not only spares Mephibosheth, but he pours out goodness upon this guy. He not only saves Mephibosheth from the shadow of death, but quite literally prepares a table before him. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Maybe David had been able to write that because he could remember the experience of Mephibosheth here. But it's not just protection that Mephibosheth receives. Not just because of this, this covenant that David had made to his, his father Jonathan, that Mephibosheth received protection. He also receives provision. In fact, in fact, as Mephibosheth meets the king from whom he hid all his life, when he meets the king, that's when his life actually truly begins. Up to this point, he's been hiding, not living a real life. He met the man he feared most, and his life began. And so as verse 6, but I'm going a little too hard, too far ahead of myself. Verse 6 he falls to his face, Mephibosheth, and he says to the king, or the king says, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, at your service. And the king says, no, at my table. What, what a, friends, if it wasn't such a, a um, if it wasn't such a tragic irony, it would actually be laughable. Imagine the court, there's David, there's all the royal guard, there's, there's this power and prestige, security, and here's this probably about 21-year-old prince of the former household who's a cripple sprawled out on the floor, and he says, at your service. Now, you can imagine some of the guards standing there snickering. <laughs> really? At your service? <laughs> what, you, you think you're going to fight in the king's military? You think you're going to go out and till in the king's field? What service, Mephibosheth, can you be to the king? None. Mephibosheth is a nobody who can do nothing, who's literally from nowhere. And as verse 8 says, he, he's not just useless as a dead dog, he's dead weight. On top of this, Get this, on top of this, David sparing Mephibosheth's life and allowing the, the line of Saul to continue. Did you catch that in verse 12? That's why the narrator talks about Mephibosheth's son, Micah, just as one verse. It's because the, the line of Saul is continuing now because Mephibosheth lives, which also means the rivals to the throne of David still continue. Mephibosheth is like 100% a liability to the new king. So you've got to ask the question, so why does the king do this? Because the king does not break covenant. Jesus taught you last week, remember that vivid passage from Genesis 15 about splitting the animals in two and walking through it? The king does not break covenant regardless of how inconvenient, regardless of the cost to himself, even if it means his own life. He will not break covenant. Friends, this offer from 
given to Mephibosheth reminds me, reminds us of Hannah's prayer. Remember way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that, that, that launched off this whole saga. The barren woman crying out to God to remember her state and give her a son. Remember that. Let me, let me read to you verse 8 of that amazing prayer. This is what Hannah says in, in his exaltation to the Lord. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And he makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. David's fulfilling the covenant that he made to Jonathan, to his son Mephibosheth. It wasn't just mere rote duty. David's not simply tolerating Mephibosheth, you know, just giving him the bare minimum so he can say, I kept my word, I'm done with this. No. David is pouring out undeserved blessings into his life. Guys, you got to know, the Lord still does that. He does that today. Psalm 103, verse 10 and 11. He does not treat us according to our sins. He doesn't relate to us according to the way our iniquities deserve. But as high as the heavens is from the earth, so far, so, so high is his chesed, his steadfast love to those who fear him. And we see a living example of that right here between David and Mephibosheth. And David says, all that was Saul's is now yours. Everything that was Saul is now, Mephibosheth, is yours. You don't have to hide nowhere. You have it all. But here's the thing, guys. That, isn't, that, e that even isn't the significant part of this offer. Mephibosheth is invited into relationship with the king. Notice he says, you will always eat at my table. It's hard for us in our culture because, I mean, you're hungry, you get something to eat, right? You got 150 options out there. I mean, literally, you don't even have to go someplace. You open up your smartphone and people will bring you fast food, right? So for us, eating is not all that a significant a thing. But in a time and a place where eating took a long time, it wasn't very plentiful, eating was a powerful sign of, of fellowship and a symbol of friendship or, or fellowship and friendship that you hope would happen, right? And the, we, we've retained some of that in like dating culture, right? What's the first thing you do when you, wanna, when you hope to have fellowship and friendship with someone? You ask them out to dinner, right? Guys, do not pull out your phone and get fast food delivered to you. Right? Just as a, as a freebie there, not a good thing. But eating is this powerful symbol of fellowship and communion, which is why, by the way, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners was so controversial, and everyone wigged out because that's what Jesus was doing. Because it was a sign that God's king was eating with God's enemies as a sign of God's grace. And friend, today the same invitation is offered and extended to eat at the Lord's table. Every month when we gather at the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper service, we rightly say to the Lord, at your service, and he says, no, at my table. Every month we're reminded as a church body, God eating with his former enemies, now sons and daughters, as evidence of his covenant-keeping chesed, his kindness and grace. Friends, if you are a Christian, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9 says, one day you will eat for real at the Lord's table. But for now, we sit and patiently await that day, and we proclaim it as we sit at the Lord's table during the Lord's Supper. Is that how you thought of the Lord's Supper? Or did you think you're just kind of showing up, getting your little bit of grape juice and a bread, and that's it? 
No. It's the Lord saying, you come at my table. You be my, one of my sons, one of my daughters. You who were once an enemy, a rebel. I want you with me as family. Friends, this interaction between David and Mephibosheth is a beautiful reminder of God's chesed love as Mephibosheth humbly receives it. I mean, it's life-changing. It's totally undeserved, and it's rooted to promise just like the gospel is today. And so the covenant that was made protects Mephibosheth. The covenant that was made is providing for Mephibosheth. But the covenant also gave Mephibosheth a brand new identity. And that's my last point. You see in verse 11, it makes clear the connection. The invitation to eat at the king's table was an invitation to intimate relationship. Like that, the passage says, of one of the king's sons. No less than four times we read that Mephibosheth gets to eat at the king's table. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13. Mephibosheth went from being a fearful nobody from nowhere to an honored place at the table of the king. And friends, being at the king's table, it didn't just ensure a place of honor among the court, but it also provided access Mephibosheth was now at the center of power, not just access to the king, but to all the movers and shakers of the affair of state. All the people who were making decisions what would happen in the kingdom. Mephibosheth was now in the know. He had that kind of access, and it was a powerful access, and it was a personal, intimate access. And I couldn't help but as I was studying this, think about Jesus speaking to his disciples and saying, look, you're not just my servants anymore. You're my friends. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. But it's more than just being friends. Second Samuel says, no, you're you're also family. Friends, that's where I just gotta say to you, if you're understanding Christianity hasn't been this familial and friendship understanding that it's all just about rules and do's and don'ts. You're missing out. For you, the, the Christianity, it's all about something that it's actually nothing about that stuff. The rules, are there rules to it? Yes, absolutely. Are there ways we're supposed to live? Absolutely. But the rules are there to keep you in the blessings of being the friend of the king, family member to the king. And when we get out of those rules, hopefully you have friends, hopefully you have family who are telling you, what are you doing? You're going to settle for, for that, oh, there's kids in the rooms, so I can't use that word, um, less than blessing, you're going to abandon that for this? No. You know, but still, a lot of times people forget that Christianity is this, it's this family, it's this friendship, and the rules are there to keep us in a sphere of blessing. It's not about the rules. The rules are about keeping our friendship and family together. And that covenant that David made changed Mephibosheth's very identity. Last point, I I hope you didn't miss that the fact that Mephibosheth was the recipient of this hesed love all because of the sake of another. In other words, Mephibosheth didn't receive all these blessings because of who he was. Remember, he was a useless liability to the king from a defeated house. He did not belong. But all this was his because David made covenant with someone else. Friends, you you simply cannot understand 
or appreciates David's covenant love unless you know the author of it, unless you know the source of it, unless you've experienced it yourself. Chapter 9 is a wonderful picture of a kingdom of, where justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion reign. But in this kingdom of justice and righteousness, you find that it's populated by citizens who were once enemies. And the kingdom of God is no different today. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 21. You and you who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, notice the whole holisticness, my mind, my thoughts, the way I lived, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But that's not all. Paul also says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then two verses later, Paul defines it. He teases out what it means to be a sinner. For while you were enemies, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Friend, I'll be honest, I'm wrapping it up. We are all the Lord's Mephibosheths. I know it's a hit to the pride. It's a hit to our pride to say, I'm lame. I'm from a defeated house. And I'm nothing but a liability. And the only thing the king should do, rightly speaking, is to just cast me out. To really live there, that's a hit to your pride. Like Mephibosheth, though. Can you really do anything different than just fall down on your face and say, I'm your servant? Friend, when you can honestly come to that point, when you realize you don't bring anything to the table, the only thing you brought to the table is your liabilities. When you honestly realize that no matter what, even if you want, that the nothing you, you can never serve in the way you should be. And the only thing you can hope for is that you receive mercy because you're completely dependent upon it. Man, when you're there, and that's how you come before the Lord, you're going to hear, hey, don't be afraid. <laughs> Eat at my table. Be my son. Be my daughter. Like I said, it's life-changing. It's totally undeserved. And it's rooted in the promise because it's rooted in God's steadfast love. It's the gospel message. Let me ask you this as I close. Are you there? Maybe somebody brought you here today, kind of like they brought Mephibosheth to David. And you're like, I don't want to be there. I don't know. I'm and, and, and maybe you've been hiding from the very king who could actually make your life begin today. The very one you've been avoiding and hiding from. And someone brought you here and now you're here. Your life could begin today. If that's you, take it from me, a fellow spiritual, moral, quadriplegic. He will raise you up and place you in a place of honor because he's made a promise to another. He will never break. And you can be the beneficiary of that promise. And it can happen today. I'm going to pray, but before we pray, I'm going to pray for us generally. It's my privilege to do that. But I, I kind of want to know who I might be praying for. Maybe you realize I am the Lord's Mephibosheth. If that's you, we're going to close our eyes in a few minutes, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Just look at me. I'm not going to make you do anything else. I'm not going to walk down the aisle or raise your hand or stand up. We're not going to sing songs to you or anything like that. 
I just want to know who I'm praying with and praying for. If you realize, man, I'm the Lord's Mephibosheth, and I want, I want my life to begin now. I just look up at me, catch my eye. There's a lot of people here, so if I don't catch your eye, you know, do the auction thing, wave a flag, do something. I just want to know, I want to pray for you, pray with you. And, for you, and maybe for some, maybe one of you, that's the first time today. Maybe for some of you, it's the thousandth time. Come to the point you realize, all I can do is throw myself on the mercy of this king. And guess what? He'll say, don't be afraid. Eat at my table. Be my kid. That's what Christianity is. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teachings of 2 Samuel 9 and, and just its relevance to our life. And, and, and I just want to give an opportunity right now. So, um, okay, the praise team's coming up, so don't look up now because I don't want them to see either. So I want you guys to come up and you keep your eyes closed. If this is you, if you're saying, look, I'm a, I'm a Mephibosheth. I need to be made right. I don't want to be hiding from the king. Just look up at me, catch my eye so I know who I'm praying with. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. If that's you, just look up at me. And like I said, sometimes my eyesight's not all that great, so maybe kind of wink or wave your hand or something, let me know that I'm praying for you. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? Okay, anyone else? I'm looking over to my, my um, right, so just catch my eye. If there's anyone else here, is that what you're saying? Okay, we're going to pray together. One less. You too? Awesome. Anyone else? Let's pray. Lord, we're tired of hiding. I'm tired of thinking that because we are in a defeated house, that we are, have been your enemies, that you will treat us with wrath. Father, we hear the rumors and, and we realize now by reading your word, they're lies. You haven't been purging, you've been blessing. And we want to come before you and throw ourselves at your mercy. Because the promise you made to your son that he would not lose one because of what he's done. Father, for all my brothers and sisters who are just saying, I, I want to be restored with the Lord. I want to be sitting at his table. Father, thank you for the picture, the beautiful gospel picture of David and Mephibosheth. And we recognize that is the gospel picture of your son, Jesus Christ, to any of us who would look up at him. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters who have acknowledged this would feel that they would hear you saying to them, do not fear. Eat, be at my table, and be my child. Lord, forgive us for letting Christianity be just about rules and performance, and we've lost the, the fellowship, the friendship with you, the joy of walking in purity and righteousness. Father, forgive us for turning aside brothers and sisters who've tried to keep us and remind us of the rules so that we might stay in the sphere of blessing. Father, give us the strength to do what we so often cannot do for ourselves. Raise us up, we pray, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.